there's an interesting connection between the history of ghost towns and the sport of boxing. Let's uncover some forgotten stories from the past, exploring some towns that hosted some championship fights and some of the people that promoted, trained, and fought their way into boxing legend. Hello and welcome to another Midwest Ghost Town podcast. My name is Dan Klein. I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town and abandoned history adventurer. And like we say on this channel, let's keep history alive. And one way we can certainly do that is by talking about it, making this podcast and, of course, videos as well. One story that popped up several times while doing research on some of America's ghost towns was the story of mining towns, oil fields, and lumberjack camps, many abandoned now, but not the stories of some of the activities that entertained or provided a little side hustle cash for some of the miners and workers. And that's the story of boxing. Yes, boxing, a sport that was either tolerated or banned in certain cities or states between 1895 and 1990. Early working towns like mining, oil, and logging camps had a rough presence about them. Every day, the lives of the miners and workers presented the possibility of their last day of life, whether death by explosion, fire, drowning, or crushed from the very environment that supported their families. So to have a violent sport such as boxing presented to them was a way of life in the shadows, and sometimes blatantly right out in the open. Whether an Irish immigrant worker gaining a few dollars on the side from winning fighting bets, or simply the escape into a world where they felt they could distract their hard-working situations. Regardless, boxing was present and alive. We ran into several stories associated with ghost towns and boxing, but for this two-part series, we'll dive into just a couple. With part one, taking us to the desert of Nevada and to the small unincorporated desert city of Goldfield, Nevada. Goldfield became a town overnight with the discovery of gold. It didn't take long for the boomtown to explode to over 20,000 residents from 1902 to 1907. By 1904, the town's mines were producing more than $10,000 a day, and within two years, Goldfield had surpassed Virginia City as the biggest town in the state. But that all began to fade after 1910, when the mines began to decline. In 1913, a flash flood destroyed several blocks of the city, and in 1923, a fire swept through, burning 53 square blocks. Over the years, people drifted away. Still, despite its relatively short life, Goldfield was one of Nevada's bigger strikes, producing an estimated 80 million to 125 million in gold. But Goldfield still had an interesting story to tell. Once upon a time, Wyatt and Virgil Earp walked its streets, holding the law and keeping the peace in 1904. But a year later, Virgil caught pneumonia and died, and Wyatt left soon after. But for the sake of this story, and the connection between the living ghost town of Goldfield, Nevada, and the sport of boxing, we draw up on the year of 1906, at the peak of Goldfield's existence and the introduction of one of the time period's top boxing promoters, Tex Rickard. In fact, George Lewis Tex Rickard is often compared to P.T. Barnum and Don King for his level of promoting events. And he was a big player. He founded the New York Rangers of the National Hockey League, 
and he rebuilt New York's Madison Square Garden and went on to operate several saloons, hotels, and casinos from Alaska to Canada and deep into the heart of gold country in Nevada, which was currently Goldfield. And this is where the boxing story in Goldfield takes flight. Tex had been dreaming of ways to bring a lightweight championship boxing match to town, and it didn't take long for a fight between Battling Nelson and Joe Gans to take shape. We'll go ahead and take a pause here for a minute, and we'll return back to the fight and the town of Goldfield. And at this time, I just want to go ahead and take time to answer a few questions I had in my email box. I feel they played nicely into this episode, especially referring to Goldfield. I received this email from Joanna. She asked, what defines a ghost town? This is a great question. I've answered it in past videos, but I feel that this is one that gets asked a lot. And so let's dive into it. Ghost towns have been defined by five main classes. And this might call for a video by itself, but glossing over this quickly, let's go over these five classes. Class one is a barren town. Essentially, there's nothing left of this town. This is a typical Midwest ghost town. Example on this, farm fields. You go out, there used to be a town there no longer. You can't even find the towns or any reminisce that a town even existed. This would be class one. Class two is a neglected town. This is where the town is still present, but the buildings are in disrepair. And essentially what you're finding are ruins. Class three is an abandoned town. This is what most people think about today with buildings being present but zero population. Think of kind of the Wild West or some of the mining towns up in the mountain regions. These are kind of the ghost towns that we kind of see in our heads today and this would be class three. Class four, semi-abandoned town. This is the majority of the structures that are vacant or in disrespair. 75% of the town's buildings are uninhabited. And population is at about 10% of its boom time statistics. I typically call these living ghost towns, and you might have heard that in some other episodes before, where there's still some people around. And then finally, we have class five. This is a historic town. These are towns that have been restored or renovated or brought back to their original condition. Think parks, museums, recreations, there might even be minimal commerce present. I was thinking of the past video I was doing with Orange City and Calliope, Iowa, fighting for the county where they did a recreation in Haywarden, Iowa. So that would be kind of what we're talking about with Class 5. So you can still visit Goldfield today, which has a population of around 220 people, which is around well below that 10% of the 20,000 that they had at its peak. So. I call it a living ghost town. Great question though, Joanna, especially as we move forward in this channel, talking about other ghost towns. Number two, I got an email from Steve. Steve shares, can you share some intriguing stories or legends with some of the ghost towns? 100%. And in reality, Steve, that is precisely what we're trying to do here at Midwest Ghost Town. We want to share and discuss the stories. And really that's where my whole motto let's keep history alive comes from. I was talking with a local college library about ghost towns just the other day and she asked the question, so Dan, who cares about an abandoned building? What makes it special? 
Nobody probably cares. And my quick answer to that was, I totally agree. Nobody cares about a structure or a building unless you can tie it to a person, in my opinion. Unless you can bring in a human quality to the building, nobody cares about a burned down hotel. But once they learn it's the place where President Lincoln stayed while campaigning, it changes everything. So 100% Steve, I agree with you. We strive to share stories on every video, every episode. And of course, it takes a little time sometimes because we want to give decent research in what we're doing, of course. And we also want to open it up for subscribers and listeners to weigh in, provide insight, which leads directly back to Goldfield and the lightweight championship fight between the Dane, Oscar Battle Nelson, and America's first African-American champion, Joe Gans. It was September 3rd, 1906, Labor Day. And the once quiet Main Street in Goldfield was now booming with excitement. The street was lined with saloons and music halls in anticipation of the large crowds drawn to the fight. Reporters were everywhere to cover the fight, which had a purse of over 34,000 to the winner. All stacked on display for all to see in large freshly minted $20 gold pieces. More than 8,000 to 15,000 fans gathered in Goldfield paying over $90,000 to watch the fight of the ages. A chance to watch Gans considered the old master versus Nelson considered the durable dame and even drew some famous attenders like President Teddy Roosevelt's son, Kermit, and the famous author of White Fang, Jack London, who was ringside to gather writing material for future books. But there was a problem. Gans, who was predicted to win the fight, was struggling to make weight. He had to try and lose the weight, and battling Nelson's manager, Billy Nolan, was furious of the weight loss attempt and was well aware of Gans' issues with making weight, and made known if Gans is even one pound overweight, this fight is over. We are calling off the fight. Nelson's manager was trying to secure a win in any way that he could. Pushing the weight issue was one way, but he also pushed for Nelson to make more money than Gans for stepping in the ring against him, asking a whopping 22 thousand five hundred dollars compared to Gans eleven thousand but Gans did not complain as he was broke from a recent divorce and in need of money in any way he could get it when the bell rang both boxers began their assault with Nelson advancing and sending punch after punch into Gans but Gans proved to be a quicker on his feet and more accurate with his punches dodging and counting punches dodging and jabbing the heat of the day around 3 p.m. in Nevada was almost unbearable, reaching an excess of 100 degrees as the sun beat down on the match, making it almost impossible to breathe. Gans tried to shield the sun with an umbrella before the match, and even between rounds, each fighter had assistants and cornermen fanning them to cool them down. That's just how hot it was during the match. Round after round ensued, and soon it appeared, as each boxer took his hit, that this would be a match of endurance rather than of strength or finesse. Round eight came quickly, and Gans offered the first knockdown of the durable Dane, catching Nelson off guard with a right cross and a left hook. Round nine followed, 
with a few warnings being given to Nelson for cheap shots, which involved low punches mixed with elbow throws. Round 33 began and Gans made a brilliant move and made a right-handed upper swing connecting his punch with Nelson's temple. And that's when it happened. Gans heard a small cracking noise and instantly felt a sharp pain shoot through his right hand down his wrist. In the process of landing the blow, Gans had broken his hand, but this far into the match he had little choice but to hide his injury for the rest of the match. Round 34, 35, 36, and 37 came and went. Round 40, 41, and finally, round 42. Nelson, feeling defeat knocking at the door, began a barrage of punches, throwing and landing punch after punch in the last effort to win the match. But in the process, known as a rule breaker, Nelson made an illegal low punch below the belt and automatically disqualified himself from the match, giving the win to Gans and cementing the 42-round fight into boxing history as the longest fight. All in the streets of a living ghost town. If ghost towns could talk. Interesting enough, as we cover ghost towns and abandoned history, the lightweight fight would go down in history as one of the all-time classics. Not typical for a place to fight, but it shed a light on Nevada as a place where other big fights could come and be recognized, especially in the larger casino towns. And of course, we can't have a discussion or podcast about boxing unless we bring up Rocky. Hang on, we'll be taking on some abandoned history with Rocky right after this. Hey, Ghost Town and Abandoned History fans. I'm a lot like you. I love to learn about and research history. This is Dan Klein here, host of the Midwest Ghost Town. I love to hear more from you. If you have a thought or a story to share about some of the history we are talking about, I'd love to hear it. Consider dropping a like or a comment. And if you like content like this, consider subscribing. And let's have a conversation and keep history alive. Who can forget the epic movie and boxing movie series, Rocky? Everything from his moment stepping into the ring against Apollo Creed to draping the American flag over his shoulders after knocking out the Russian boxer, it's pretty much boxing drama. I think the iconic scene that will always stay fresh in my mind is the scene where he is working in the meat locker and he is being videoed by a local Philly station showing this unknown wild child from the city of brotherly love known as the Italian Stallion, going all out, bare hands, bloody fist, punching some frozen meat. And what brings Rocky to the final part of episode one is Mickey's place, which interesting enough, if you go and check out the different Rocky areas in and around Philadelphia, especially the narrow building known as the Kensington Building on North Front Street, you'll come face to face with what is remembered as the rundown old gym where Rocky learned to box and train to fight. And of course, many of you probably remember old Mickey, the character of Mickey, the old gruff guy telling Rocky that he's got to fight better. But what you might not know is that Mickey's place is just the exterior 
of the building. If you were to go inside the building, you wouldn't find a boxing gym. No, back in the day, if you wanted to see that interior, you would need to go out to Los Angeles, where they filmed scenes at the old Main Street gym. Scenes for Mickey's was filmed in Rocky, Rocky II, and sadly, the gym was bulldozed in 1984 to make way for a parking lot. Today, there's really nothing to see at that location. In 1990, during the filming of Rocky V, a look-alike set was constructed for the scenes in which Rocky enters the abandoned gym and later when the guys clean it up for reuse to train other fighters. But, even though the interior of the gym is no longer, you can still visit the exterior in Philadelphia, including the famous pair of red boxing gloves that are painted on the side of that building. Ghost towns and boxing, a combination that might surprise some. But looking back in history, a sport like boxing probably had a lot of the answers that local miners and laborers were looking for. A way to fight for everything you had and a way to make a little cash gambling or betting for something you could believe in. Either betting on yourself or betting on somebody else that you knew. We'll have a chance to learn more about boxing up in the states of Michigan and Ohio, especially in the oil fields of Northern Ohio, all in episode two coming out next week. But for now, we remember and reflect. Let's keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town.